G.K. Chesterton wrote that every heresy is a truth taught out of proportion. So for example, one of the central truths of Revelation, the most beautiful, is God's merciful love. This is incarnate in Christ. We know that Christ reached out to sinners. But our Lord also frequently called people to repentance. And if you ignore that, then you're going to have a very a distorted understanding of God's merciful love. Scripture says that God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. But Scripture also says that many will not be saved. When Jesus teaches uh, the parable of the wheat and weeds, he's teaching his disciples that in the church there will be some bad people and to not be overzealous in trying to uproot them out. But in today's gospel, Jesus teaches that there is a process which can result in excluding someone from the community of faith. Uh, this is a process sometimes called fraternal correction. So Jesus says, if your brother sins, um, post it on social media, right? No. Uh, talk to everyone else about it except for him about his errors. No, right? So talk to your brother and try to explain to him so that he can see the error of his ways. And if he doesn't listen to you, then bring two or three with you. And hopefully then he'll listen and understand. And if he doesn't listen to them, he says, bring it to the church, that is, to the church authorities. And if he doesn't listen even to the church, Jesus says, treat him as you would a Gentile or tax collector. That is to say, treat him as an outsider. And this is a, one of the scriptural bases for the church practice of excommunication. Another important passage regarding this is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You know, there's a lot of problems in the church in Corinth. But one of the things that was most egregious, Paul talked about in chapter 5. There was a man who was living with his father's wife. He was living with her in a sexual union. And Paul says to the Corinthians... The one who did this should be expelled from your midst. You are to deliver this man to the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul is anticipating that the man's exclusion from the church would actually lead to his suffering, which would hopefully lead to his repentance so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. So excommunication is medicinal. Its goal is not merely exclusion, but rather to bring about a greater good. And it is kind of, it's a very serious remedy. Now, if we don't employ the remedy when it's appropriate, though, what's the bad that will happen? Well, someone who is obstinate in grave sin, right? And at the same time, they go through the motions as being a member of the church. They're welcomed. They're considered in good standing likely they are going to harden in their sin. Their conscience will become dulled. So the excommunication is designed as a kind of wake-up call for them. It is also for the health of the church as a whole. So when someone's sin is not only obstinate, but it is manifest, it's very public, and people see that person engaged in this public sin without any any attempts at reform, and also, again, involved in the life of the church with the knowledge of church authorities, 
the person is going to conclude that, well, maybe this really isn't, sin isn't a big deal at all. Maybe my favorite sins aren't really a big deal. Maybe they're not sins at all. And so what happens then? Other people are led into sin. And this is called scandal. Now, scandal is not what's reported on tabloids, uh, but rather, theologically, scandal is our actions or words that lead others to sin. There are other passages in the New Testament which, uh, which command disassociating from people in certain circumstances. Paul, writing to the Romans, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who create dissensions and obstacles in opposition to the teaching you learned. Avoid them. Here's Paul again, writing to the Thessalonians. We instruct you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to shun any brother who conducts himself in a disorderly way and not according to the tradition they received from us. The second letter of St. John. Anyone who is so progressive as not to remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever remains in the teaching has the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him in your house or even greet him. For whoever greets him shares in his evil works. Now I'm not going to do a big exegesis on all these passages, but merely our awareness of them should help us to realize that there's a more nuanced picture of, of a church that is loving and inclusive. There's, there's some nuance to that, right? One of my favorite uh, quotes is that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. So this is very important, right? God doesn't wait for us to become perfect and then kind of honor us. No, he loves us while we are still sinners, and he tries to help us to become and he, and he does help us, right, to become holy. Um, so the church is a hospital for sinners. But a hospital has a purpose, doesn't it? <laughs> a hospital has a goal. What's the goal? Health, right? <laughs> I mean, imagine that there's a, a rehabilitation center for people addicted to drugs, and there's a patient there that brings his drugs with him, continues to use them, and shares them with other patients. Should he remain in the rehab center? Probably not. Administrators who would leave him there would be considered uh, grossly negligent. Now, there is a difference, right? All of us are broken and sinners. There's a difference to someone who acknowledges their weakness and is trying to get better and someone who is obstinate, in fact, justifies their sin. One of the watchwords uh, for the upcoming Synod on Synodality, and you should know there's going to be a big meeting in Rome in the month of October, this Synod on Synodality. One of the watchwords that's come out of uh, some of the working uh, documents is, uh, quote, radical inclusion. This idea that everyone should feel included in the church. Although it's somewhat vague, and I have questions about it. Uh, I've observed that those who advocate this view um, seldom or never address the radical exclusion, which is hell, which is something that Jesus speaks about often. The Holy Father, Pope Francis, has made some statements about this that seem to really minimize the danger of hell. In fact, uh, some of them, which are ver very verified, but others reported by an Italian journalist to whom he gave multiple interviews uh, are very concerning statements that 
the Vatican has never denied that he said. But Jesus taught otherwise. He frequently warned that unrepentant sin will lead to a radical exclusion, an eternal separation from God. God calls Ezekiel, as he does the other prophets, to be a watchman, right? The watchman is on the tower looking for dangers that come to the city. But this is a watchman that is to warn people of the dangers of their wickedness, that their wickedness will result in their death. And we shouldn't understand this as physical death because all people die, the just and wicked, but rather what Revelation refers to as the second death, right? That exclusion from God we call hell. And Ezekiel is told to warn the wicked and they may repent and if, and if they do, then he's helped save their lives. And if they don't, you still got to warn them. Otherwise, Ezekiel, you will be guilty of their death. There's also some uh, questions, or uh, one main question I would like to ask the proponents of radical inclusion, and this is not meant to merely be rhetorical. I really, I'm curious what they would say. Um, and that is, um, are there limits to the radical inclusion? For example, if someone who identifies as Catholic and goes to church, but who also practices witchcraft, should they receive Holy Communion? Um, what about someone who is a member of the mafia or drug cartel? There are many of them in Catholic countries who participate in the life of the church. And they have rationalized it in their minds. And maybe, maybe we need to just be understanding to the difficult situation they're in, allow them to continue to live this double life. What about someone who is an avowed racist? How long do we accompany them before we tell them they have to make a choice? They can't be a disciple of Christ and also be a racist. Should they be allowed to receive communion? Should they serve on the pastoral council? And if not for an avowed racist, then why for someone who supports the alphabet ideology or abortion on demand? In the 1940s, the schools in the state of Missouri were segregated. Whites went to certain schools and blacks went to other schools. And it was, in theory, uh, something called a separate but equal principle. The idea is that though there was segregation, that both races would be treated equally. This comes from a Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, which in practice was never the case. Right? The schools for the blacks were never as well funded, but the very idea of it supported a notion of the superiority, a wicked notion of the superiority of whites. Sadly, Catholic schools also practiced segregation in Missouri, and that is until 1947, when the Archbishop of St. Louis, Joseph Ritter, segregated the Catholic schools. And this was a big deal because 25% of all school children were in Catholic schools. And this was before the state had allowed for integration. And there were many Catholics who were upset with the Archbishop and in fact threatened to sue him because he was violating the state laws. So Archbishop Ritter wrote a letter and he said, any Catholic who files suit to try to stop integration will be excommunicated. And guess what, no one filed a lawsuit. <laughs> um, and Rome backed him. And I think he 
exercised his authority properly, and he served as the watchman which God had called him to serve. Now, that was the 1940s, and it was a very different Catholic culture then. Catholics were concerned about being excommunicated, and perhaps now they really don't care. I know that this was a controversy in 2020 among bishops who disagreed with each other. Um, the issue was pro-choice politicians, and even a very pro-life archbishop like Timothy Dolan of New York said, well, if we excommunicate them, you know, it's just going to kind of make them heroes, or they'll play the victim card. Maybe it'll be counterproductive. And he might have a point there. As for me, though, I think we would all benefit from drawing lines more clearly. And I think we play let's pretend too much. You can't be a faithful Catholic and advocate for mortal sin. It is better for the church to treat those who obstinately persist in grave sin as outsiders, who are, by the way, still the object of the church's solicitude, but it's better for us to treat them as outsiders now than for them to experience eternal exclusion. It is better for them to hear from the church, sorry, you can't receive communion until you repent, than to hear Jesus say to them after they die, depart from me, you evildoer. 